Hello, freaks. Welcome to Radical Research. That's a bit from Caravan, Nine Feet Underground from the In the Land of Grand Pink album. We'll be hearing more from Caravan later. This is Radical Research Podcast Episode 35. I'm Jeff Wagner, and you are, I believe, Hunter Ginn. I am. As always. Hanging on. <laughs> bad week? <laughs> bad, bad year. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. we'll try to make it better with the soothing sounds of egg later on. We've How got Canterbury on our side, don't we? We, we do. Let's talk about this Canterbury thing. I, people know it's a city uh, in England. Um, a lot of history there. In fact, saying that Canterbury has a lot of history is like saying Manhattan has a lot of people. Right. Still apparently one of the most visited cities in the United Kingdom. And for this discussion's purposes, we're certain that the city's wealth of universities was, you know, along with the music and popular culture zeitgeist of the late 60s, that student population was the primary reason that the bands under the microscope here uh, flourished and created a scene. And I think it, like a lot of scenes like this, a lot, a lot of geographic scenes, it was unwitting. Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, it, it is an, an unselfconscious thing where you get this, you know, this confluence of creative people and they all know each other. They all have similar goals. They might not have, um, similar approaches, which is more interesting because it, it, it creates this variety of sounds. Um, and you know, there's it's sort of like in you know in Norway, where in, in throughout the show you'll see an incredible overlap in terms of personnel between these bands. Yeah, but it's it, okay. it's basically you know it's a congregation of you know just sort of like-minded people. I, I want to touch on something you just mentioned there. The, you know, be, like a lot of geographic music movements, and I, I think we think probably particularly of the Swedish and Norwegian metal populations, there was this incestuous family tree from which these bands were born. I mean, and you can't say enough about that when we're talking about Canterbury music. 
it just seemed like some band members were like in every band. You know, you have somebody like <laughs> right. Dave Stewart was just popping up everywhere. Uh, and you have like linchpins like like a Robert, Robert Wyatt, Wyatt. Yep. Or, a, or a Richard Sinclair who were just like kind of hopping around everywhere. You know, in Richard Sinclair's case, he was in a band outside of Canterbury called Camel, who all prog heads should know. Uh, and Dave Stewart ended up in Bruford. So, um, yep. you know, they, were, they weren't just restricted and, to and, their... And Charles Hayward um, from Quiet Sun wound up in uh, uh, This Heat. Yeah, Phil Manzanera from Quiet Sun and Roxy Music. Right. So, it, yeah, uh, yeah all, all kinds of fun family tree stuff going on in the Canterbury scene. Like Krautrock, the German movement, the so-called Krautrock, even though a lot of either fans or musicians themselves kind of despise that terminology because it's simply sort of geographic in origin, you, you also have to admit that there's a lot of distinctive traits that they share, and you know, amongst all the different bands. And that's certainly the case in the Canterbury stuff. It has a very distinctive sound. And how would you kind of describe it? Um, subtle, uh, musically deft. Um, I think there's a sort of blithe humor with some of the um, Canterbury bands um, in a in an overall global movement that is known for its seriousness. There's a mischievous to some of this music. Part of that is the jazz influence, that freewheeling sort of jazz thing that, that comes into a lot of this stuff. Um, I think that's where they must draw a lot of their more laid back or just kind of more freewheeling approach from, right. perhaps. I don't want to contradict you, but, and I don't often, so maybe this is just, you know, feels weird because you said subtle. There's subtleties to a lot of this music, but I think, and maybe it's just the uh, snippets we picked for this episode, but I think a lot of it's pretty unsubtle, actually. Very like well, a lot, yeah. Like, I just think um, it, that the playing is, and even the um, the lyrical content is sort of understated compared to that widescreen drama that you'd normally encounter in prog rock. Um, yeah. I mean, we'll see that there's, there's like a delicacy to the approach, like with egg and we'll see it in Hatfield. And yeah. I just, I don't know. It's always struck me like that. Maybe just less of the, the heavier rock element, right? Yeah. Less bombast uh, maybe. Yeah. Less bombast that a lot of the other prog bands had either from England or outside of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we could keep going on about the traits. And, well, of course, we're going to listen to them. That's the most important thing. But, you know, I think there was a hypnotic element of a lot of psych music from the time coming into this music. I think the disorienting puzzle of, like, avant-garde music would come into it sometimes, too. Uh, We have a track from Egg later on that will illustrate that. And even Egg played around with a little bit of, like, dirt-caked proto-metal in a snippet that we're going to play. And as you say, a lot of humor, a lot of wit. It was there. And uh, we love song titles here. And um, th- a lot of these bands had really, really great yeah, song titles. Yes. Uh, there was like an open openness to non sequiturs and silliness and just oddity and really just plain nonsense sometimes. We have to talk about two bands that are primarily the reason for the outgrowth of all these other bands. I, I think the two earliest, really. One of them is called The Wildflowers and the other one's called Uriel. Mm-hmm. And between these two bands, you know, they provide a lot of the musicians that would uh, go on to form Soft Machine, Caravan, Hatfield in the North. The list goes on and on and on. National Health, Con. Neither of them produced much recorded material. We're not going to listen to anything tonight. They weren't really that well formed, not as well formed as some of these others. Uh, but I think they're important to note. And that kind of brings us to Soft Machine, really. 
the linchpin of Soft Machine was Robert Wyatt. The band came out of the early psychedelic Canterbury scene. Robert Wyatt was in The Wildflowers. And definitely a guy who, though um, very conscious of um, of jazz and very um, very deferent to it as well. He was a big John Coltrane fan, for instance. Uh, Robert Wyatt had a, an abiding pop sensibility that followed him from here into the rest of his career. And at a certain point, the the jazz and pop elements sort of fell out of balance within Soft Machine. And the other guys in the band were sort of aspiring to something a little more serious, a little more experimental. And I think that created, you know, friction with Wyatt, who, though he liked those things, um, you know, found himself at odds in this sort of like hook barren landscape. And I, I think t- like third is maybe the, I guess the consensus is that's like the best reconciliation of all those tendencies. And bassist Hugh Hopper um, would continue down the uh, fusion stream, um, had a, a, a nice career, recorded uh, some records for the great Cuneiform out of Maryland, owned by Steve yep. Eigenbaum, and like probably the crucible for rock and opposition in this country, I would think. Oh, absolutely. And we'll get to uh, the next snippet. We'll talk a little bit about Cuneiform too. There's a, there's a link there as well. But this is Soft Machine from their fourth album from 1971, uh, a track called Virtually Part One. We'll listen to a bit of that. Uh, this is the last one to feature Robert Wyatt on drums, also featured, as you mentioned, Hugh Hopper on bass, uh, Mike Ratledge on organ, piano, and acoustic piano, uh, and Elton Dean on saxophone. Fair to say that Soft Machine's modus operandi was improvisation and repetition? Yes. Why do you think they are one of the most well-known of this cluster of groups? Uh, because they're, they're probably one of the most inaccessible as well. But I also think they're like one of the most unique. I think they stand out from it for that very reason. 
Um, mm, and I okay. think that, you know, you know why it has a, a wide legacy subsequent to this, but I, I think that, you know, and, and you and I agree, like they're, you know, probably our least favorite of the bands that we're going to feature tonight, but they, they are, that could be heretical to some people listening, but they could, well, uh, that's the least of my heresies. Um, <laughs> it's just how it is. Too, yeah. Right? Yeah. But, but I mean, they are, um, easily distinguishable too. Good points. Good points for sure. So we talk a lot about Wyatt. He left, he formed, amongst other things, because he did some solo work, appeared on a shitload of people's albums over the years. Oh, yeah. But he also formed a band called Matching Mole, who really were no, not a whole lot more accessible than Soft Machine. But I think he got his pop sensibility out a little bit more with the solo work. But yeah, Matching Mole, uh, we're going to actually listen to a a live take from them from uh, 1972. This performance was put out as a thing called Smoke Signals in 2001 by Cuneiform Records. Uh, our buddy, Mr. Feigenbaum, supported that. And uh, this is a track from Robert Wyatt's Matching Mole, Brandy, as in Benji. <laughs> Keeping Prog weird since the early 70s, matching wall. <laughs> Pretty weird. I mean, that's, yeah, I like that little diversion there. Just uh, <laughs> kind of go off and get really, really messed up. Yeah, and that that uh, live performance features, of course, Wyatt, but also um, Phil Miller on guitar, whose name will come up later, uh, and also a guy named Bill McCormick on bass, who was in Quiet Sun, who we will also listen to later. So, even early on here, a lot of familiar names coming up, a lot of great players, a lot of people really dedicated to, to this kind of weirdness. And speaking of weird, we're not going to feature Gong on this show. And I think it's really debatable whether Gong are a true Canterbury band. And the reason for that is that band, Gong, were co-founded by a guy named David Allen. 
he was a one-time member of Soft Machine uh, early on, and he was Australian, and he let his visa expire. At some point, he wasn't allowed back into England, so he went to France, and there he formed Gong with uh, a couple French people. You know, eventually some Englishmen came on to play in Gong. A lot of people played in Gong. I think you played in Gong, right? Um, Just a, a de- like a late period demo. I think I'm going to play in Gong. I think we're all in Gong yeah. to some degree. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, so they're kind of French, kind of English, kind of Australian, I suppose. And it's debatable whether they're a Canterbury band. I know that that's also probably heretical to some Canterbury diehards. Are they a Canterbury band? I think they're part of the tree, I suppose. They, they are part of the tree. There's no no denying that. But yeah. they are, yeah. I mean, they are so zany, so whimsical, um, and so psychedelic um, that, like, what they do, even in, in light of uh, the divergent paths of Soft Machine, are hard to sort of yoke into the Canterbury rubric, as it were. <laughs> This is true. Yeah, no, this is true. They're, they're, they're kind of on an extreme edge anyway. We appreciate them, but, you know, we want to get to some of our other favorites, so we'll, we'll move on. Um, a lot of respect to Gong. But uh, we're going to move on to a band called Egg. This is a band that Hunter and I both really enjoy. I think probably one of my first Canterbury loves. I don't know about you. Uh, yeah, we can get into how I got into Canterbury later if, if you'd like. But yeah. Let's hear it now. Well, so... I guess the first thing would be Camel, who are a tangential band and aren't who you know aren't actually Canterbury, but, but they of, really sound like they could be, don't they? They do, because again, like light on bombast, you know, very elegant. Right. Um, but that's when I got my first whiff of Canterbury, and then um, within a couple of, like a couple of issues or a few issues. Um, I, I've been a, an avid reader of The Wire for like, going on 22 years now. Um, yes, you have, as long as I've known you. Yeah, and, and Canterbury is one of the, like, the few acceptable prog variants at, at The Wire. Um, it's indigenously, indigenously English, of course, which helps it, but they've never had any time, any, uh, any issue persecuting um, Genesis and Jethro Tull and ELP. Um, and, and will seem to go to great lengths to do so. But, but they love Soft Machine. They love Matching Mole. They love Egg, love Hatfield. And, and that's really kind of where I got tapped into the scene. Okay. Okay, cool. Yeah, and I know you both, I think we both picked up Polite Forest as our first Egg album, yes. if I'm not mistaken. Yes. And that thing is so great. This features uh, Dave Stewart on uh, all kinds of keyboards. He's a favorite of ours for sure. And he's in this band on this album with a guy named Clive Brooks and another guy named Hugo Martin Montgomery Campbell. And this album, The Polite Force, which I guess is a, a pun on police force that doesn't totally work greatly. but um, <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> but, but it's cool. And they also had their, uh, their third album called The Civil Surface instead of The Civil Service. <laughs> so, you know, they're into these um, interesting municipal puns, I suppose. <laughs> M- municipal prog. I suppose. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> um, and we have a song coming up about a hospital here called Newport Hospital. Jeez, but yeah, this, the Polite Force opens up with a song called A Visit to Newport Hospital. And I guess we'll just listen because I know it blew you away when you first heard it. It blows me away still. blows us away still. This is Egg.
couple moments from visit to Newport Hospital. I sure uh, can understand why the snobs at Wire like that so much. But that's a pretty snobby attitude. But I guess that's a show for another time. It is. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. But, I mean, there's there's hardly any way that you can argue with that. Um, it is just so confident and so menacing and a direct contradiction to my claims of subtlety. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess that was one of the things I was thinking of when you mentioned that. We should probably note that in Canterbury bands, like all these bands, or I should say most of them, not all of them, there were vocals, but um, they were kind of secondary perhaps even afterthoughts. They just never seemed, I think with the exception of maybe Caravan, they never seemed like a focal point. Yeah, um, right. Yeah, Caravan had more vocals more consistently. Such as it is, yeah, it's it's the musical moments that I think are the most thrilling in Canterbury. And when you did get lyrics, you got these weird, witty, odd things. And, um, you know, I, I like that as the part of the Canterbury stew for sure. We're going to move on to uh, another song from The Polite Forest. This is a challenging piece of music here. This is one called Boilk. So that was Boil, <laughs> a title that makes about as much sense as the music that you just listened to. It's the word boil with a K, and I wonder if that has any connotation to egg. Boil? I, boil. I don't know. It could be, yeah, I, yeah. it could be Cleob. <laughs> <laughs> but I, honestly, that, that piece has more to do with, say, like the AMM or the Spontaneous Music Ensemble than it does anything in Prague. Um, yeah. It is just outright improvisation. 
Yeah, uh, man, I, I love Egg. I, their first album is also good. The it Civil is. Surface is also good. Uh, those three albums that they put out, all great. But uh, Polite Force, man, it's a, it, it is a force. It's a piece of work. It's um, a Canterbury high point for sure. It's one of my very favorites in this whole scene. Yes, absolutely. We've played a lot of challenging stuff so far. We're going to get into more challenging stuff as well. One thing we didn't choose to do this episode, but I, I really want to mention these songs and this side of Canterbury, is stuff like Share It by Hatfield and North, stuff like Golf Girl from Caravan. Right. Um, these kind of really jaunty, but really well-written, kind of fun little pop songs. Pop songs. And um, yeah, they're, and those are great songs. In hindsight, now I'm wishing we would have just slammed up Golf Girl against Boyle or something or share it just to show you that the sort of breadth of this scene and this movement, because those, that's a great aspect of Canterbury as well, as you do get that pop side every now and then. And speaking of Caravan, we're going to move on to their fifth album for Girls Who Grow Plump in the Night. One of my Caravan favorites, perhaps my favorite, uh, not a popular opinion. I think a lot of people go to uh, their second or third albums. In the, in the Land of Grand Pink is unassailably awesome. Um, Love it. Yeah, but for girls who grow up plump in the night, it's just a really consistently esoteric yet accessible type of album. The piece we're going to play is called, I don't know how to pronounce it. It's obviously Lovecraftian. It's called Cthulhu Tlu. This is something that juxtaposes dread and heaviness along with kind of this, what I, what I always think of as a more of a partridge family kind of um, levity, right. we'll say. Do you remember me playing this for you at the end of one of our long, epic listening sessions when you visited in Virginia one time? Wow. Okay. I didn't think so because you simply weren't, you had almost nothing to say about it, which I was kind of surprised. And I think... When we listen to it, you know, I think everybody's going to hear like what an exceptional tune this is. But I think it was at the end of a very long listening session. We were probably both just fatigued. You know, our ears were completely fatigued. Yeah, yeah. Probably the wrong time to play it for you. But uh, I'm assuming you've since oh, yeah. um, come sure. around to it. Or, yeah. yeah. Well, without further ado, this is uh, probably my favorite track we're going to be playing this entire episode. This is Caravan off their fifth album and a song called Cthulhu Tulu.
that is only the sort of hopping about that you could have done in the 70s. It, at first listen, I remember when I first got into that song, like it sounded a little haphazard, but now it sounds really, really purposeful to me. Um, and, and there's a yeah. that second little vignette that we played is almost like glam rock. You know, it's like, and it, it says a lot about Caravan and their capacity to maneuver through and around genres. Yeah, it's almost T-Rex or something. Exactly. Yeah. It, I mean, it, it, but it's like, it's really solid pop craftsmanship. For sure. And, and I, I do it a great disservice by calling it the Partridge Family moment. No, but no, they no, just, I know what you're saying there. Caravan has moments every now and then that just remind me of that sort of like 1966 sort of pre-psych, pre-heavy pop that was coming out of England that the Americans tried to sort of try on for size. And um, and I think that's what you get. Yeah, and that's okay. Sorry, say that again. A breeziness about it. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and that's okay. I've come to really enjoy that. I love the pastoral, almost backcountry element to that, just how easy it is. But I think when you slam it up against the dread that's there in this song, um, I think that's really when it works really well. And like you say, it does sound a little disjointed at first. And we've both come to really love what this song is all about, because I think the dread would already be there if that more lighthearted part were out of there. But I, I still think it has I still think it has more impact. It makes you feel a little creeped out that. We're ex- having this experience in this the same moment. It really. almost kind of seems sociopathic. It's like one of, those, exactly. like one of those Patrick Bateman moments from American Psycho. You know, <laughs> for sure, for sure. The gleaming smile, the attraction, and then he pulls out either a glare that's murderous, or you know, if we want to go you know more literal, the knife. And yeah, um, yeah that's what that's what Caravan's basically doing in that song. And I think that there's that part that that kind of. Um, it's it's a little bit pre-Voivode in the way that um, Crack the Sky's Nuclear Apathy is. Right. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, Just yeah, these, yeah, totally. These kind of guitar figures that were, okay, you know, Fripp is probably doing them, and I guess you could point to a couple other people at this time, but um, who's the guy in Henry Cow? Fred oh, Frith? Oh, yeah, Fred Frith. Yeah, he's probably doing some of that sort of stuff, but you weren't hearing it a ton, and when you did, um, it really stood out, um, especially against that backdrop of that pastoral happy moment. Definitely um, one of the ultimate Canterbury bands, no question about it. Uh, their first five albums are fantastic. Um, Caravan, in the early days, uh, we played, uh, to open up the episode, we played a track from their third album. That album, amongst others, featured Richard Sinclair and his brother David. Richard went on to Hatfield in the North, and we're going to listen to them next. Hatfield in the North was a really incredible band. I think just two albums and an EP. Featured Richard on bass and vocals, Phil Miller on guitar, Dave Stewart on piano, which we have uh, an organ, which we've mentioned him quite a bit and will continue to, and a drummer named Pip Pyle. And the drummer actually wrote this next song, which is called Shaving is Boring. And another guy with uh, <laughs> ties to Cuneiform Records. Ah, th- yeah. Didn't he have like a solo band who released stuff? Yep, he did. Interesting. Interesting. Great drummer. Wheels within wheels. And he is, yeah, he's a fantastic drummer. I mean, that's the thing. You know, the one thing about Canterbury is like like all other prog from all other areas of England or around the world, these guys are playing at a pretty high level. I'm sure, you know, people tuning in to this episode have heard that already. We're going to hear it even more with the next few bands. This is when, this one, it gets really serious, even though it's kind of fun too. Obviously, the song is called Shaving is Boring. This is from the- I agree. This is from the self-titled debut by Hatfield in the North. And I do agree, shaving is boring, isn't it? It really is. 
I do it. As, I do it as yeah as little as possible. That's that's good stuff. No, it's don't be fooled. Yeah, I mentioned before we got into that that Pip Pyle, the drummer, wrote it, but clearly there's a lot going on there. Obviously, Richard Sinclair takes a badass, mean bass solo, um, amongst you know other things. Stewart just raging on the keyboards. What happens when a drummer is credited with that, but clearly the band's all chiming in? I mean, that, I, I wonder if that's just a. I, like an agreement of like royalties or, or like what, 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 what's going I, on? I guess it depends. Like, I, I, I guess I'd think about um, Matt Cameron, uh, either in Soundgarden or Pearl Jam, where I feel like when Matt Cameron writes, it's sort of like the final piece. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. But yeah. if. Well, because he plays guitar. Right. His Wellwater Conspiracy Band, he's playing guitar. Right. Um, right. But I feel like a lot. I mean, I know from my experience in Canvas. Like unless I write something on another instrument, like uh, sinusoid mirage on cortical, I'm mostly writing rhythm and relying on the rest of the band to sort of fill that in. You provided the foundation, so therefore you get the credit. A partial credit, I would say. Okay, I'm just wondering because yeah. you know I look at this Hatfield and North album, and it, like, every song is credited to simply uh, one member. 
without exception, actually, I'm looking at it right now, except for Rifferama, which is Richard Sinclair arranged by the North. That's fair enough. But like, yeah, but you have like every guy pitching in, writing something, but gosh, there's just so much contribution from all the other guys. I just find that interesting when, um, especially when a drummer writes something like Shaving is Boring, what we just heard. We love Hatfield in the North, clearly. We're going to move on to another Hatfield album called The Rotters Club. Um, Mm. This is like one of my favorite prog albums. Oh, excellent. It's up there with the first Hatfield for me. I, I think they're equally awesome. This one opens with Share It, which I've mentioned before. I got obsessed with that song. That's one, That was one of those songs I was waking up in the morning and playing like eight times. Right. Because I just had, I had, to, I had to be in it. Yeah. I had to have that in my life. It was one of those. And then this album also has a lot of great song titles. <laughs> like Big John Wayne, Socks Psychology on the Jaw. <laughs> That's a disharmonic yeah, orchestra is. level right there. Yeah, it is. Uh, Chaos at the Greasy Spoon. Um, there's a song called Mumps that has a subtitle, Your Majesty is Like, sorry, Your Majesty is Like a Cream Donut. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to listen to a bit from a thing called the Yes No Interlude. And we are getting into the meat of Canterbury right here because I think this is the stuff that you and I respond to the most. Uh, things like Hatfield, Egg, and the next band, National Health, yeah, which we'll talk good, about in a good. second. In that track by Hatfield, that's also a pit pile composition, interestingly enough. Uh, we didn't plan it that way. The other guys write plenty, but that's a great tune. Two things come to mind on that one. That was recorded in 75. So there must be some King Crimson influence and there must be some influence from Zappa and the Mothers on a lot of this stuff. Yeah, and I, I think too, I think there there probably is a big Zappa influence, but I think it's also their sort of shared like soul and R&B influences too. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Mutual influences basically. Yeah, exactly. And I think Phil Miller's guitar work there is reminiscent of Fripp, not to take anything away from Miller, but 
come on. I, I think about the sort of wet and Bruford era of Crimson right there with uh, some of the guitar work. Exactly. Now, interestingly enough, three-fourths of Hatfield in the North would go on to form a band called National Health after the dissolution of Hatfield. Uh, Richard Sinclair went on to Camel at this time, I believe. And the other guys, Phil Miller, Dave Stewart, and Pip Pyle formed National Health. And they recorded a couple albums. We're going to listen to a, a pretty badass moment, a bit from Square for Maud. I know, badass. <laughs> Super badass. Um, <laughs> yeah, so this band like tends a little more um, toward the fusionoid side of things, but always yeah. very heavily invested in composition. Um, and that last part that um, that at first sounds like improvisation turns into this just like sinister fugue. I think the shoes a like a huge uh, Henry Cow influence there. Oh, yeah. Good, good point. And I, I think Henry Cow kind of intersects a bit with Canterbury. They're they're obviously way more dissonant. But yeah, some of the stuff does have that little bit of whiff of Henry Cow. Good point. If you don't own any national health records, at the very least, get the self-titled end of Cues and Cures. No doubt about it. We move on to a band called Con. This is one of the earliest records to feature a guitarist named Steve Hillage, who... We'll be talking about a good bit in the next few snippets. Had a guy named Nick Greenwood on bass, Eric Peachy on drums, and the ubiquitous Dave Stewart <laughs> on organ and piano, Celeste and marimbas. Space Shanty, as dodgy of an album title as that is, has a great album cover and is a great album in general. It's the only one Khan ever put out. Hillage left, I think, for Gong, and then on to Greater Pastors with solo work. Dave right. Stewart just kept 
you know, moving forward. But this is this is great stuff, Space Shanty. When did you get into this one? I, uh, I think got, we got into it. You got time. me into this. Um, About 2013? 2004, early 2014. And yeah. It was in one yeah. of the um, the Zoller Troves. And I think you already had a copy <laughs> and you mailed me this one. And I, I, just, right. I loved it immediately. Right. Just to, just to explain, not to go into great detail, but just to explain, uh, I have a buddy named uh, S. Craig Zoller who just Google him. He, uh, he buys CDs like fucking crazy. You think we're bad, he, you know, but he just dives in and just like, the, just like the rest of us, no different, but he likes to shed a lot of that stuff. And I am the recipient of some of the, uh, the sheddings and um, I go through it. I, I give a lot to friends. I keep some for myself. Others lay around. Some gets recycled. And yeah, he didn't like con space shanty for some reason. And I had gotten into that like six months prior. And I thought, aha, I will absolutely give this one to Hunter. So you got it. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) Well, well, you're welcome. Thanks, Zoller. I spent no money or expense to do it. Thanks, Greg. Um, Yeah, of course. Thanks, Greg, for not liking Khan. Um, We know he listens to Radical Research. I hope that uh, he listens to this and changes his mind, buys another copy. He may not. He probably won't. He knows what he likes. This is Driving to Amsterdam. the Steve Hillage-led con um, with a track called Driving Amsterdam. Unlike a lot of the bands that we've discussed tonight, there's almost no improvisation in con. Con is a very, very compositional band. Yeah, very deliberate. Yeah, absolutely. We get we get out of the fusion area. We get out of the freeform area, uh, get into something a little bit more solid compositionally with them. 
you know, not to take anything away from Hatfield or National Health. No, no, no. But yeah, they're, they're kind of in that. I guess they probably take the rain from Caravan a little bit. Yet they kind of have a little more of a Uriah Heap thing as well because there's there's just a there's kind of a certain hard rock element to them, you know, that kind of proto metal thing going on in Con. There is it, but there's also a very dense complex thing going on in Con too. I think. Oh, oh, totally. Yeah, I mean, you get into songs like uh, what is that uh, that mountain song? Uh, Mixed up Man of the Mountains, stuff like that, or Hollow Stone. Like, yeah, you you get, you get some great complexity there. Yeah, another cool facet of Canterbury, really. Guitarist Steve Hillage would go on to numerous levels of acclaim, really. He's been kind of credited as starting that whole thing that Osric Tentacles took to the limit. Right. He's pretty well known for like just kind of like kind of getting into electronics pretty well, early. Well, I was on. about to say, like, he had um dalliances with the orb. The orb, yeah. 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 Um back in um you know, the late eighties, early nineties, like Hillage had become sort of like a fixture in like the chill out rooms at raves um right. it's sort of a like is this you know kind of new age pastoral techno producer yep but, and uh he, here he is a member of uh con and gong he went solo um his first handful of solo albums are just fantastic none of them alike you know they're very different from one to the other um the first one was called fish rising and um, the final track on that one was called Afterglid. And I think we'll see, even early on here, his fascination with hypnosis and repetition and kind of uh, like a looping sort of mentality. Let's, let's see what you think. This is a, a bit from the long song, Afterglid. a little snippet from Steve Hillage's epic uh, Afterglid. And you can hear 
you know, tidbits in that song that uh, would anticipate the sort of uh, sort of ambient, repetitious, uh, motoric techno sounds that Hillage would um, un- almost unwittingly pioneer, <laughs> you know, in the the late '80s and early '90s. I don't see <laughs> Hillage at any point thought that you know he would be sort of a, a revered figure in in this uh, British dance music scene, but right. Right, so, but it's uh, there. You know, Manuel uh, Gerching from um, Ashraf Temple actually um, went on to uh, to make sort of system heavy, you know, rhythmic cell repetitive guitar music in the seventies and the you know early eighties that would uh, be a big influence on that later too. Nice. So, so Hillage and him, yeah. I mean, amongst others, but you yeah, know, sure. it's it's definitely there. Um, even his solo work would continue to evolve with like um, Rainbow Dome music, I think. Right. And even you can hear it a little bit on uh, Motivation Radio, uh, the third album. We're going to get into the second album, L, as in Lunar. But first, um, on Fish Rising, the, the album we just kind of sampled from, Pierre Morlin uh, plays on that from uh, Gong. And would you know, wouldn't you know that Dave Stewart plays on that as well? <laughs> Weird. I know, right? The ubiquitous Dave Stewart. He's everywhere. That's crazy. But we move on to the album L. Now, this is not the first album called L that we've played something from on this podcast. It is not. We played, exactly, we played a little bit of from uh, Godly and Cream's L on the Art Rock show. But this is uh, concerned with uh, Steve Hillage's second album. I guess it's called L because of lunar music. I, there's no other um, explanation that I've ever come across. Maybe I haven't done my research very radically, but um, it's it's all that I know. Um, this is a little bit from the Lunar Music Suite. Now, it should be noted that there is something called the Solar Music Suite on Fish Rising. That's nothing to do with the Grobschnitt song, Solar Music, which we did an entire episode on a while back. Uh, this is his own lunar solar thing this is a bit from lunar music suite this is fantastic i'm just going to say it right out strap in
Released in 1976, the L album by Steve Hillage was produced by Todd Rundgren. And it's no wonder that this sounds a little bit like early Utopia because uh, Todd's involved. And then you have Roger Powell, John Wilcox, and Chasm Sultan playing on a lot of this record. The last little bit that we played literally yep. sounds like it's lifted from Utopia. Yep. I was thinking the same thing. Right. It's uh, that perfect. Yeah, totally. From the uh, the very first Todd Rundgren's Utopia album. That's amazing stuff. And uh, it's no wonder Todd Rundgren took an interest and Steve Hillage had a lot of respect for Todd by that point. I'm sure Hillage was probably a huge fan of that first uh, Utopia album oh, and also sure. the Raw album. Great stuff. That's the Lunar Music Suite, or at least a part of it. We end the Canterbury jaunt with a band called Quiet Sun, who are kind of interesting they existed for just a few years in the early 70s. They like break up in 72. And they, they, they break up in, in like 72. Or something. Yeah, they break up in 72 and reform in about 75 to make a record. Um, just to kind of put for posterity, I guess, things on tape. And they came up with the album called Mainstream, which it was anything but. It's it was probably one of the most. It is not mainstream. <laughs> No, one of the most inaccessible, challenging, and interesting, and just plain freaking awesome albums from the entire Canterbury world. We have Phil Manzanera on guitar, who went on to great fame with uh, Roxy Music, and some great solo albums as well. His solo album, Diamond Head, uh, amongst others, is, is just excellent, excellent art rock stuff. Bill McCormick on bass, who we mentioned earlier. Uh, the album featured a little bit of Eno, Brian Eno. Uh, on synthesizers and oblique strategies. He's always coming in with that stuff. We're going to listen to a little bit from a song called Bargain Classics.
selfishly, I would like to say that I think Charles Hayward is one of the most uh, inventive and, and underrated drummers of that era. His work in uh, This Heat is even more radical um, and more beautiful. But I think that he makes quite an impact on the song. And honestly, I think you can hear the residue of this one song alone sort of float over the following 20 years of avant-garde rock. Yeah, very much. Uh, Quiet Sun were underappreciated at the time. Glad they got back together to just put it on the tape uh, at all. And um, yeah, you're right. They they really sort of portend a lot of stuff that would come. Yeah, tons. Some people we didn't mention, and we're not trying to just name drop every single person that was involved in uh, the Canterbury scene, uh, but people like Mike Oldfield intersected with it. Kevin Ayers was a big part of it. Barbara Gaskin, Pi Hastings, Alan Holdsworth, Theo Travis. List goes on. This was a this was a huge and fascinating, fascinating scene. We hope that a lot of you weren't familiar and, and are now and are going out and buying maybe a couple of the albums that you heard tonight. You know, this is just really a, a great, great movement in the whole kind of prog world. And it is prog, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it draws from so many things, but it is prog ultimately, right? Ultimately, yeah. It, it siphons down into prog. Thanks for listening. Next episode, 36 will be Melvin's. Which Melvin's particularly? I'm glad you asked, Jeff. <laughs> that would be 2002's Hostile Ambient Takeover. Oh, I'm, I'm down for that. I'm totally down for that. Me too. This record uh, represents, at least for the two of us, a sort of demarcation in the history of Melvin's, um, who have already up to this point, circulated through a number of eras and sounds and genres. But this would separate sort of the, the original trio uh, formation of the band into a uh, quartet configuration subsequently. Right. And we're going to listen to a little bit of what led up to this record and a little bit of what followed. Um, but this represents for us a very fascinating iteration in their entire uh, morphology. Yeah, we knew that when we formed Radical Research, we knew that we wouldn't be too long before we covered the Melvins. It just, um, it's just one of these mutual fascinations we have. I think they kind of tick all the right boxes for what Radical Research is about. And um, really hard to pick how to do a Melvins episode if we were going to do an album. Doing a full career survey would be probably impossible because that'd be about impossible. Five, I mean, five hours, right? Right. Their discography is so rich, so much depth, um, so much to talk about. So we started to think about an album, and um, I had uh, a recent illumination with Hostile Ambient Takeover, and um, I just told Hunter, let's do that one, and he was like, okay, no problem. You know, things like Bullhead come to mind, Houdini, Maggot, you know, Hold It In. I, that's a later album that I love. But Hostile Ambient Takeover, we will dissect and present in two weeks.